0: Lonely song, the song's for you. Today is not going to be nearly as much fun as it has been in the past. One of the things we learn in our study of esoteric truth is there's more. It really doesn't matter how much knowledge you gather, there's always more. It doesn't matter how much of the knowledge that you've gathered that you apply and then gain understanding through that, there's always more. More than we have seen, no matter how much we've seen. More than we've heard, no matter how much we've heard. Over the past few weeks, we've discussed how the intelligence of these ideas opens up our consciousness so that we're able to see several things where previously, at a distance, we saw only one thing. As an example, I think we've used, from a distance, you see a forest. As you get closer, you see that the forest is made up of trees, several things, or a lot of things. And as you get closer still, you see that the trees have branches. So you see that one tree has many branches. Then you move closer still and you see that the branches have smaller branches and then even leaves on those branches. At a distance, things appear to be one way. But as we get closer to them, as we expand our consciousness, as the intelligence of these ideas begins to work in us, we start to see many things where once we only saw one The esoteric idea that we are not one, but many different beings enables us the possibility of thinking from the level of causes rather than only the level of effects. One of the problems that we have had and do have in this life is we think from effects. We look at the world that we're living in and let's face it, we cannot distinguish ourselves from the world. We think we are in the world. In esoteric teachings tell us, no, we're not in the world at all. We're looking into the world, but we, who we really are, are not in the world. The only access that we have to the world is really a false access. It's an access provided to us by the five senses. It's like looking through a telescope where you can hear and smell and feel everything that you're looking at. So it's a kind of a super telescope. When you think about it, that's what the senses are. We are looking into this distant world that is really very far down from where real I is, from where the essential real part of you is, where you belong. That place from whence you came is very far above this plane that we look at through the five senses. So when you think about Beelzebub's tales to his grandson and Beelzebub being on I think it was Mars and while he's on Mars he's looking through this telescope at Earth and he's over the years watch over thousands of years watching these people on Earth and what they do he studies them and so the whole story of Belzebub's tales to his grandson is he tells his grandson all about these three-brained beings crawling along this planet and the crazy things they do and how out of whack they are with the rest of the universe because down here they're under different laws. Down here, there are things that are very different than at other places in the universe, higher up in the universe, where things are as they should be. But down here, things are not as they should be. And one of the reasons is we're crazy, because we think that we are in this world when the truth is we're really not. The real of us is looking into this world, but not actually in this world. It's a very strange idea, but it's an idea that you become familiar with the more you study esoteric teachings from all different ages and all different areas, because they all essentially say the same thing. So starting off with this idea that we're not one but many beings gives us the possibility of thinking from the level of causes rather than the level of effects. If you can see that you are not one but many beings, then you can see that the cause of all of these effects that you're usually thinking at is actually in you. It's not out there as we suppose it is. It's not with other people as we assume that it is. Instead, it's actually within us. But because we take ourselves as one instead of many, we miss most of the cause, which puts us in a very bad position for trying to figure out how to fix anything. How do you change an effect if you can't find the cause of it? What happened with your car last week? Yes, thank you very much. But it was the alternator. So you did figure it out. So, how you figured it out is the battery, on the way over, the battery was going down and the car was cutting out. And so you thought, okay, the battery is not charged. And then when you went to start it after the meeting, it wouldn't start. The battery was dead. So, you've traced that back to the cause. The battery is not being charged. It's probably the alternator. You check everything else out and you say, okay, then it's probably the alternator. We need to have the alternator checked. So, you have the alternator checked. Sure enough, it's the alternator. That's finding the cause. If you had looked at my car to find out why your battery was dead, you wouldn't find anything. Because if you take all cars as one, then it doesn't matter which car you look at. But if you see that there are lots of different cars out there, then you have to trace the problem with that car back to what causes that car to have that problem. It's the same thing with us. If we're looking at other people as the cause of our problems, we'll never solve any of the problems. All we'll ever do is nag other people and frustrate ourselves with bad relationships. Because as long as you're blaming someone else for what's wrong with your life, you're going to have some pretty bad relationships. I mean, let's face it. Nobody, well, hardly anybody likes to be blamed. There are some people who thrive on it, but most people don't thrive on being blamed. I might want to rethink that, huh? When you consider how much people seem to get blamed and the whole victim thing that we love is like, oh, they're blaming me. You know, the whole martyr victim thing. Maybe people do like it a lot more than I imagine. I'm not fond of it. But hey, if you like it, okay. Some people like to be hit in the head with a board because when you stop hitting the head with a board, it feels good. So whatever. From thinking that we're not one but many, giving us the possibility of thinking at the level of causes rather than only at the level of effects, we're led deeper still. There is still a more interior kind of thinking than thinking from causes. How's that going to work? First you tell me we are living out here on the circumference of the wheel, and we're trying to figure everything out in the world of effects, but we're totally ignoring the world of causes, what makes the effects manifest. But now, you take me back to the world of causes, and you say, oh, there's still more. There's something deeper still. What is that? It is to think from ends. You'll recognize that end, cause, and effect form a triad. End, cause, and effect. We know that no manifestation is possible without a triad. If you have just two things, there's the one thing that comes up, the thesis, and then you have the antithesis, which comes up against that. Without a synthesis, without a neutralizing force, those two things stay locked in opposition, and nothing happens. There's nothing going to happen. But if you add a neutralizing force, then something can happen. So that's the triad, the law of three, and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about this triad. No manifestation possible without a triad. It's the law of three in action in the phenomenal world. The problem is is that not everything that we see in the phenomenal world has its cause or its end in the phenomenal world, in the world of the five senses. This is what puts us at a disadvantage. If we're only looking in one place, let's say you've lost your keys, you've misplaced your keys. If you have been in four rooms in this house and you're only looking in one room for your keys then you only have a 25% chance of finding your keys if given that your keys could be in any of the four rooms. And if you only look in that room and your keys are in another room, you have no chance of finding your keys. So as long as we're looking in the world of effects for causes, we have no chance of finding the cause. But as long as we're looking in the room of cause, we have no chance of finding the end. I'll explain the end a little bit more. The effect couldn't exist without the cause, and the cause couldn't exist without the end. It's very easy to see that the effect couldn't exist without the cause. Simple as can be. If I knock the water over, it's going to spill. We can see the cause as me knocking the water over. We can see the effect as the spill. But what is the end? We don't generally see the end because we don't think very deeply. Our thoughts are not internal kinds of thoughts because our attention is attracted so much through the five senses out here into the physical realm that it's very difficult for us to wrestle them loose and then turn them inward so that we can start to think more interiorly, which is what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. And we'll probably keep talking about this for a while because it's something that we really need to get practiced at. And that's all it takes is practice. The end is the cause of the cause. And so, obviously, if it's the cause of the cause, it's clearly the cause of the effect. So this doesn't descend into intellectual obscurity. I'll give you an example because examples are always good. They give us handles for these ideas. And without handles for these ideas, These ideas can just go bouncing around in your head. And the next thing you know, they'll find a place. They're like eggs. And they'll find a little nest. And they'll settle down in that nest. And that's it. You'll never see them again. They'll never hatch. Nothing will ever happen. You'll never see them again. They'll just be there in that nest, cluttering up your mind. Because all of your little eggs, all of your little egg ideas will be in separate nests. You'll never get them where they're supposed to be. Because there's no handle on them to understand where they belong, how to categorize them, what connects with what. See, eggs don't connect with anything, do they, really? When you think about it, eggs don't really connect with anything. Ideas don't connect with anything in and of themselves unless we connect them. If we allow them to be connected by life, by the people in the world, we end up with a false personality and we end up wrongly connected. Then, to undo all those connections and to redo them correctly, we've got to have some good ideas. And those good ideas can't come from the world. They have to come from somewhere else. They have to come from beyond the world. They have to come from a place that's more real. And if they come from a place that's more real, then the ideas will be more real. If the ideas will be more real, they can lead us in the direction of reality. The best we can do, as we are, is move in the direction of reality. What was that I read this morning to you? It was excellent. It was what C.S. Lewis had said. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the essential part of you, the part of you that chooses your will into something a little different from what it was before. This is precisely, exactly what this work is based on. The idea that through little acts of will, you gradually begin to transform your being by transforming your will, by forging your will, because you will forge your will when you make a decision. Because if you make a decision, whatever that choice is, whatever that choice may be, you had a lot of other choices too. You may think you only had two choices. Wouldn't that be lovely if we only had two choices in life? Here's your choice. Do something good or do something bad. And it's never the way it is. We have a choice of something good and something bad and something pretty good and something not so bad and then something really good and something really bad. And so the choices don't become between good and bad for most people who are on a path of transformation. The choice becomes between good and good and good and good and good. good. Which good is the best good for me? Maybe the good that I'm choosing is great for you, but it may not be the best good for me on my path where I am. How many maps are there of San Diego? Let's take one map of San Diego. Let's say everybody in San Diego has this one map of San Diego. It's a copy. They all have this one map. They'll all use it in a different way because they're all going in different directions on different paths. So some of them will never use one part of a map, and the other people will never use that other part of the map. So this is the same way. Some people will never use some good choices, while other people will use those good choices over and over again. So for us, it's a matter of that choice business. With all your innumerable choices, C.S. Lewis says, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing, this essential part of you, this will of you, this being of you, into either a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with the absolute and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with the absolute and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, its joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotency, and eternal loneliness. We don't have to look far to see that the false personality gives us madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. What can be more lonely than the separateness that the ego saddles us with? Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or to the other. So if we are progressing to the one state or to the other, then each decision that we make, each choice that we make, is taking us closer to one or the other aim. Regardless of what our aim is, If we have a life aim, then you can be sure it's taking us to the horror, the idiocy, the madness, and so on and so forth. If we have a different aim, a work aim, as we call it, or as they call it, then it's taking you in another direction. It's taking you to more interior thinking. So now we've established that the effect couldn't exist without the cause. The cause couldn't exist without the end. The end is the cause of the cause, and so also of the effect. I know it all sounds like double talk. Here's the example. You see the chair you're sitting on, or there's someone else is sitting on. What are you seeing? Yeah, that's a tough question. Of course, you're going to say it's a chair, but it's an effect. What you're really seeing in this world of effects, no matter what you're looking at, is an effect. We call that effect a chair, but it's an effect. What was its cause? Now, this is a trick question because its effective causes were multiple. It wasn't just one thing that caused that particular chair. The workshop, the wood, the material, the metal... The tools, the machines that went into making it, the workers who operated the machines. What was the cause of the cause or causes in the case of this chair? The idea, a desire for profit, quite possibly, but I think that would be more at the cause rather than the end. Like I said, what was the cause or the causes of this particular effect? One of the causes of this particular effect, the chair, would probably be or may very well be a desire for profit. But that's not the end. The cause of the cause was the end. The end was to have something convenient upon which to sit. You see, that trumps all the other ones. That is the end. It's the idea of something convenient upon which to sit. Everything else unfolds out of that. So the end is what causes the causes that cause the effect. I know, but remember, I said we were going to go deeper still. As we go deeper still, it's not going to get simpler. It's going to get more complex. Then, after it gets more and more complex, it will become simple again. This is the way it works, and it's a contradiction out here in the land of effects. But interiorly, in the land of cause and end, it's not a contradiction at all. It may seem to you the end is one, something convenient upon which to sit. The causes set in motion by the end are many, but selected and simplified according to the intelligence at work. For example, if Jez hadn't said desire for profit, chances are you wouldn't have thought of that. I wouldn't have. That probably would just never enter my mind. Desire for profit. I don't work like that. I work on a completely different basis. People who live in the world and have jobs and go to work and do things have a desire for profit. I operate in a different world. In my world, desire for profit doesn't really enter in. In my world, desire for sharing enters in. Profit just comes from that. In some other people's world, desire for profit is what gives them the desire to share. For me, desire to share is what gives me the profit. The intelligence at work. Selected and simplified according to the intelligence at work. If you have a worldly intelligence, a phenomenal intelligence, a sense-based intelligence, then according to the intelligence at work, that sense-based intelligence, that'll select and simplify the end. The result or effect is, again, one. Thinking from ends may appear to narrow thinking since we're going from one to many to one again. But this isn't the way it really is. It doesn't really narrow thinking. Morris Nichols said, every end is a particular in the universal end, and the universal end is in every particular, and so end is infinite. This doesn't work in our sense-based mind, and that's why you have to be thinking more internally. That's why you've got to be exercising this other mind that is related to these ideas. It's a weak mind compared to the mind that we use all the time. The sense-based mind is the mind that we live in, we're identified with, and we use all the time. Naturally, it's very strong. If you're left-handed, your left arm and your left hand are more than likely stronger than your right arm and your right hand. If you're right-handed, more than likely, your right arm and your right hand is stronger than your left arm and your left hand. It's because of use. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. Or, if you'll recall what we were talking about just a few moments ago with C.S. Lewis, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. With all your choices, you're slowly turning this thing into something, one thing or another. Every time you choose to use your right hand instead of your left hand, you're choosing to strengthen your left hand. You're choosing to favor it for dexterity and agility over the left hand. And so it gets stronger and better at the task at hand. If you use the other hand, it may be very awkward to begin with, but eventually you can train it to be just as strong and just as agile and just as dexterous as the other hand. It is possible. It can be done. Most people will never do it. It takes too much effort. But it can be done. And if you're forced to do it, you can eat with your feet. You can type with your feet. You can put your makeup on with your feet. I've seen people do it. Forced to do it. When they lose their arms, they use their feet. We are adaptable. And so this is the same way. But you are going to have to force yourself, discipline yourself to use this other, more interior mind, more internal mind, this other mind that deals with these ideas in a much better way, because it's equipped to deal with those ideas, whereas the sense-based mind is only equipped to deal with the senses and the ideas that come from the sense-based world. If we go back to what Morris Nichols said, every end is a particular in the universal end, and the universal end is in every particular, and so the end then is infinite. Yeah, that's tough. And it's always tough because we're trying to sort out something that we don't normally think about. It's not something that the sense-based mind can get hold of. If I hold two objects up, I say, think of these objects. Can you see that they are different? Okay, you can see that they're different. They're different in size. They're not different in color. They're both black. But yet, they're different in texture. They have different highlights. They have different weights, different hues, different shapes. We can see that they're different. We can understand that pretty easily with the sense-based mind, can't we? It's child's play. Give children blocks and shapes and things, and their games are to put the blocks and the shapes in the right place and to do this and to do that. Those are the little child's play games, and these are the games that the sense mind is good at. But when we start to talk about every end is a particular in the universal end, and the universal end is in every particular, and so end is infinite. Now we're having problems because the sense-based mind wants to look at objects. The sense-based mind says, go back to the blocks. Have you got some blocks that I can spell that out with? Have you got something that I can put a handle on that with? That's how the sense-based mind works. I'm trying to edge you closer to a more internal kind of thinking. So yes, it's tough. It's because we're moving into the realm of the miraculous, the realm of the mysterious, outside of, beyond the physical we're moving into the realm of the metaphysical mystery. Another example. In becoming conscious of the universal in the ashtray, Ospensky came near the infinite and felt the danger. This will help you to understand what we're talking about. This is a story about Ospensky. Ospensky was a smoker, and he was looking at this ashtray. Suddenly, as he was contemplating this ashtray, he became conscious of the universal in the ashtray. And he came near the infinite because when you become conscious of the universal, you are very near the infinite. When you're near the infinite, you will feel the danger of that. You know this feeling. People who have near-death experiences know this feeling. They come near the infinite and they feel the danger of it. Once upon a time, I came near the universal in the life of trees and I came near the infinite. What was the danger? The danger is always the same, losing self. Is there anything that frightens us more than loss of self? Don't say spiders, because loss of self is scarier than spiders. When I say don't say spiders, I mean, don't go back into the sense mind, but stay here in this other mind, because we've now got a little toehold here. So we can't do much with every end is a particular in the universal end, and the universal end is in every particular, and so end is infinite. Some people who have thought this through, who put handles on these ideas, and who've worked it out, that's not a big deal. They look at that and they go, well, yeah, of course. But some people, they're thinking, oh, that's that's tough. You know, I don't usually think like that. And so I bring up losing self and what's more frightening than that. And they go right back in the sense of mind and say, spiders, spiders, snakes, they're more frightening than that. But actually, losing yourself is the fear that causes the fear of spiders. What's a spider going to do to you? It's always back to losing self. If you ponder that the cause of anything is everything, what causes anything, anything, anything at all? We could say, what caused the chair? What is the end? The idea of something convenient upon which to sit. What caused that? Everything. Everything. Every human being who ever sat and whoever will sit. Everything. The idea of convenience, the idea of sharing, the idea of love, the idea of everything. Where does creation come from? Where does everything come from? It comes from nothing. The Tao says it comes from nothing. What is nothing? Everything. Nothing must be everything, and everything must be nothing. And this is why the sense mind will not get this. The sense mind says, tilt, but you can feel inside of you a more interior thought, a more interior idea that resonates with this, that says, yes, even though this doesn't make sense, it's true. See, the truth doesn't make sense, because the sense world is not the true world. So it can't make truth. It can only make sense. And the truth can't make sense. It can only make truth because it is reality. What the senses bring us is not reality. That's what all of this is based on. That's what all esoteric teachings are based on. That this sense-based, quote, reality, unquote, this sense-based reality is not real at all. It's a dream that you are sleeping, that you are not really awake to what is real about you. And because you're not really awake of what is real about you, you are not awake to reality. But you can awaken. It is possible. It's not likely. It's not going to just happen. But it is possible if you do the things that need to be done to awaken. It is possible for you to get to work tomorrow morning if you do the things that need to be done in order to get to work tomorrow morning. If you don't do them, it's possible you won't get to work. But it's still possible that you could. Something else may happen. And if you want to live your life like that, that's fine. So like I said, if you ponder the cause of anything is everything, you'll start to feel that your grip on reason is slipping. And that's because your grip on reason is held by the sense-based mind. And the sense-based mind has an iron grip on the senses. And that is what it calls reason. But when you move more interiorly to what is behind the senses, to what is causing the senses, and to what is causing the causes, The sense-based mind starts to lose its grip. So then you feel like, because you're identified with it, you feel like you're losing your grip on reason. People will think I'm crazy. We've talked about this in the Seven Mansions when Brian Cleave says, if I write this, people will think I'm crazy. They'll call me a heretic. They'll stone me in the streets. That's when you're losing your grip on reason. When you're being drawn up into the realm of the miraculous, when you're being drawn up by these ideas into the realm of reality, into the realm of mystery, When you're drawn up into that, you have to lose your grip on reason because you're being drawn away from it. Do I have to tell you how many people will turn back here? Was it your brother that you talked to? And what did he say to you? I don't want any part of that. Steve was discussing some ideas with him. He said, I don't want any part of that. And that was it. He closed the door. This is exactly what I'm telling you. Some people will turn back. No, I'm losing my grip on reason. I'm losing my grip on everything that I know to be real. What do you know to be real? This is real. All these things are real. The chair is real. All these things are real. I'm losing my grip on what's real for this other unreal world. That's the sense-based mind, and it's fear of losing itself. It's a great esoteric truth that at any moment in time, everything is where it is and must be. This seems so simple, but this is a huge, huge, powerful idea. Let your consciousness expand so it can hold that. I'll help you with another example because examples, as I said, are like handles, and handles are good for ideas. Everything happens the only way it can happen. Can you see how connected this idea is? If everything is where it is and must be, then it makes sense that everything happens the only way it can happen. If you've done your homework, you have some experience of this truth. Connect the two, and you'll find the same root idea, the same end, as it were. The dog is just where he is. I don't know where that is, but he's just exactly where he is. The keys on the mantle are just where they are. The planets are exactly where they are in spite of our inaccurate perception of their location. See, we see the stars where they were years ago. It's the closest star is 50 light years. Is that it? 50 light years away. We don't even know if that star's still there. 50 light years ago, it was there, but it may have burned out, turned into a black hole, and now it's not there but it'll take 50 light years for us to figure that out. We see the stars where they were years ago, not where they are now. Think about trusting your perception. Think about trusting your senses when you think about that. Everything is where it is and must be at that moment of time. The universal is in every particular, and every particular is in the universal Another way of saying this very same thing is the macrocosm is in the microcosm, and the microcosm is in the macrocosm. You look at an atom, and you see a nucleus, like a sun, and all of these little electrons spinning around it. You look at the solar system, and it looks like a big atom. You look at the galaxy, and it looks like bigger. And you look at the universe, and it looks like that. And you look at the universes, and they probably look like that. We can extrapolate out to using scale and see that in scale, that's exactly how it works. Every particular is different, and the universal is one and the same. Every particular is different. This is different from this. We've been able to establish that. I held them both up. They're both the same color, but they're different shapes, different textures, different in every single way except they're both things. They're both particulars. And both those particulars are existing in this particular room, and they're existing in this particular universe. And this universe is existing in whatever universes. The particulars are all in the universal, and the universal is one and the same. Back to Dr. Nickel because he's a great thinker. I love C.S. Lewis. I love Thomas Merton. I love Gurdjieff. I love Dr. Nickel and Ospensky because they were great thinkers. Wouldn't it be great to think like they thought? Wouldn't it be great to be able to actually think the way they thought? To be able to have that kind of skill in thinking. That's like watching someone dance or watching someone play an instrument and saying, wouldn't it be great to have that gift? You idiot, it's not a gift. That person worked from the time they were five years old or three years old to get that gift. And they slaved at it. For years and years and years, a musician works longer and harder than almost any other profession. Someone who studies classical music, they start when they're three, four, five years old. And then they study it for their entire life. And they practice their whole life. Have any idea how good you could be at things if you did that? So that gift is the gift of desire, wanting to do it, having the will to follow through. So, so much for Dr. Nickel and all the rest of these great thinkers that we think, oh, I could never do that. You could if you tried. You could if you practiced. You could if you worked at it. You may not be exactly the same, but you're unique. You have something to offer, but you have to develop your gift. This is about development. This is about self-development. You are here to develop all that you could be. You were created a self-developing organism a self-developing organism that sits in front of the television and eats. That's your idea of self-development. Well, I'm watching the History Channel. Uh, I'm watching science. Uh, I'm watching good stuff. So, yeah, that's great. That helps. But it's not enough. You're never going to be a great musician. You're never going to be a great thinker doing that. And you may say, well, I don't want to be a great thinker. But wouldn't it be great to be able to think like Morris Nichols, C.S. Lewis, Thomas Merton, Ospensky, Gurdjieff, You just admitted not long ago it would be. When you didn't have an opposing force of, there's something you had to do to get it. Dr. Nichols said, the angels I have read are said to be able to comprehend the whole man from a hair of his head. Now, he wrote this back in the 40s. That may have seemed outlandish. Yes, that's something only angels could do. But now we have DNA, and we can comprehend the whole man from a hair on his head, or from saliva, or from a skin tag. And we can clone. We're not allowed to but we can. We can clone. And people are cloning. Think about it. What he said that he'd read that angels could do, we now can do. Because he said that before we had discovered the mysteries of DNA. What was theory is now verified. What was unreasonable is now obvious. It's now accepted. So when you start to lose your grip on reason in this way, know that you are moving towards something that eventually will bring you back to reason as soon as reason catches up with reality which could take a long time. Back to Ospensky's experience, to see the universe in an ashtray is to be conscious in ends. One thing becomes myriads. Here's another example, because I can see the look on your face. Huh? You're going to explain that, right? Yes, I'm going to explain that. White light, sunlight, refracted becomes the spectrum of colors we see with our physical eyes. One thing becomes myriad, just through that simple act of refraction. At the same time that that simple act of refraction happens, we remain visually blind to the larger part of the energy spectrum. The larger part of the energy spectrum makes what we can see with our physical eyes a sliver of a piece of pie. If you take the whole spectrum as a pie, cutting out one sliver, there is no knife sharp enough to cut out a small enough sliver to represent what we can see with our physical eyes out of all that's there. Yeah, wow. We have other ways of seeing it. I told you we were going to go deeper still. These thoughts are very difficult. When we think in terms of end, there's a better handle. Man is created as a self-developing organism, as his end. Your end is you're a self-developing organism. That's your end. You are to develop. That is your purpose. That is the end. That is what you're for. That's why you were caused. That's why you were created. That's why you are here. So that's it. You're created as a self-developing organism. That is your end. See how this idea has the power to rearrange our thinking? How it can make our thinking more internal? If your end as a self-developing organism, if that's it, if you're created as a self-developing organism, that's your end, then what's all this other stuff? Well, that's not your end. That brings us more internal. It makes our thinking more internal. If you can think of yourself every day as a self-developing organism... If you can think of that being why you were created, that's your end. You will be thinking more internal thoughts. That will be a ward against being dragged back into the physical world. We've got to keep on connecting more interior parts of centers with increase of meaning. More interior parts of centers have to be fed increase of meaning. They need to have more meaning if they're going to develop. And that meaning has to come from, better ideas than the ideas that are available in the world. The formatory mind uses external parts of centers. We know that. Yes, no, good, bad, hot, cold, like, dislike. We know that. That's the formatory part of the mind, and that's using these little mechanical parts of centers that have the little eyes in them. The small mechanical parts, the moving parts that react first to the flow of events we call life. They're right there. Bam. We don't have to think about it. They automatically react. This is how esoteric ideas remain sterile why they don't grow and expand in their meaning. This is how, where, and why we get stuck. We get stuck in these little parts of centers. We don't move more interiorly, where there can be more meaning, where we can generate and increase meaning. This is where evaluation of these ideas becomes vital, becomes crucial. The emotional parts of centers see much more than the moving parts. Higher centers see myriad things in what external parts of centers see as a single thing. An external part of a center looks at a person. Oh, God, it's her. That's it. And it has an aversion. But more internal parts of centers and higher centers look at that person. And instead of seeing, oh, it's her, they see myriad things that the external parts of centers will never see. You cannot know a particular thing rightly unless you know something of the whole of which it is a part. I cannot know that person who's coming. I cannot know her rightly unless I know something about the whole of which she is a part. She's a part of the whole human race. She's a part of all of creation. She's a part of the organic film that coats this planet. She's a part of a family. She's a part of all of these things. Not just, oh, it's her, that the small, mechanical, external parts of centers see. But when you look with these other parts, then you see myriad things. How can you rightly understand our Earth, apart from knowing something about the solar system of which it is a part? Well, we know that you can't, because before they figured out that the Earth was a part of a solar system, they thought those lights were just glued in up there on a dome. Well, they did. They thought this was just flat, and there was just this dome on it, like a cake cover. It was like a cake dish, and there was this dome on it that protected it, and, that's, and the little lights in there were just plugged in, stuck in there, stuck in that dome. And then, when we started to see the solar system, everything changed. Everything changed. So how could we rightly understand the Earth apart from knowing something about the solar system, of which it is a part? That takes you to the next point. Talk about the particular and the universal, and the universal and the particular, and the microcosm and the macrocosm. How can you properly understand the solar system without knowing something about the galaxy in which it moves? Yes, the solar system is moving. It's not stuck in one place. It's moving. The galaxy is moving. The whole universe is drifting, not drifting, it's spreading apart at an outrageous speed. Finally, we can understand nothing properly until we begin to understand something about the universe itself, which leads us to the great ray of creation and the order of all things. So we start off with this one little thing, it expands into this huge thing, and then it all comes back to this one thing again. Now, that little journey that I just took you on verbally is what Morris Nichol meant when he said, every end is a particular in the universal end, and the universal end is in every particular, and so, end is infinite. Now you have seen that in the great ray of creation is infinity, and fold up the great ray of creation, suck it right back up into the absolute, and everything is in the particular, and the particular is in everything. It's all wound up right there. That's deeper still. You light up an instant matter. What's part of a cosmic ladder